Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the contrast between Navalny and Putin, with one wanting to see, quote, the beautiful Russia of the future, and the other fixated on historical delusions of reviving Russian imperialism. Joining us is Daniel Treisman, Acting Director of the Center for European and Russian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Los Angeles. A leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia, he's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Doctors, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. We will discuss his article at CNN, the best tribute we can pay to Navalny. Then we will examine House Speaker Mike Johnson's financial ties to Russian oligarchs in an attempt to understand why he's cutting off aid to Ukraine when they are running out of ammunition in the war against Russian imperialism. Joining us is Anna Masolia, the editor and investigations manager at Open Secrets, which tracks the influence of money in U.S. politics, Her research areas also include foreign influence and investigations into opaque spending networks. Trained as a lawyer, she has held additional roles with the D.C. Superior Court Senior Judges Chambers, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law Voting Rights Project, the D.C. Council Committee on Government Operations, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. And finally, with two juveniles arrested for the mass shooting that turned the Super Bowl celebration in Kansas City into a tragedy, and three first responders gunned down in Minneapolis today answering a domestic dispute, and one killed and five wounded in a Waffle House shooting in Indianapolis, we'll look into a country held hostage by gun violence and speak with Jonathan Metzl, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and Director of its Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. A prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness, he's the author of several books including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, and his latest book just out is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Daniel Treisman the Acting Director of the Center for European and Russian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Los Angeles, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He is the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN, The Best Tribute We Can Pay to Navalny. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Treisman. Thanks. Good to be here. And thanks for joining us. And of course, it's gone from the murderous to the macabre in terms of the murder of Navalny, given that the Russian authorities won't hand over the body to the mother. And Yulia, his widow, thinks that they're trying to wait for the poison to dissipate from his body. But from the outside, it looks like just a a clumsy bunch of thugs uh, running a country and completely immune to the rest of the world's outrage. They're actually, Peskov is taking umbrage that all the world is blaming Putin for it. How dare they? I mean, (laughs) do they realize who they are? Or are they living in a, a world of delusion, thinking that they should be treated as statesmen? Well, it's certainly a puzzle what what reasoning uh, actually went through their mind uh, or, or Putin's mind uh, before this. We can only guess. Uh, it seems so uh, over the top uh, having 
arrested Navalny, having sent him to this remote penal colony in the Arctic, having arrested and prosecuted his lawyers, having virtually cut him off uh, from the outside world, to then, uh, assuming this is what happened, make a decision to kill him in cold blood. Uh, it seems uh, either uh, an act of tremendous uh, uh, tremendous defiance towards people who uh, accuse the Russian authorities of, uh, of uh, not following international law, international norms, uh, or so it could be a, a just incredible sign of their overconfidence and their sense of untouchability, or it could be uh, just the opposite, a sign of a sense of vulnerability as they head into this, this period before the so-called election in March, uh, when Putin will clearly be uh, re-anointed uh, for another six years as president. Um, it could be that they felt for some reason uh, Navalny still posed uh, some small threat uh, to the smooth unrolling of that. Now, as you mentioned, Yulia Navalny, Navalny has been uh, speaking out and she gave a very powerful, inspiring uh, video. She released a very, very uh, effective video today uh, in which, among other things, uh, as well as calling on Russians to keep resisting, keep fighting and, to, and not to lose hope, uh, she also said, uh, quote, we know exactly why Putin killed Navalny, killed Alexei Navalny. And uh, they, she promised that they would be revealing more information about it soon, which sounds as though the Navalny team has already done some investigation and knows more than we do about just how this happened. Uh, so maybe we will, in the end, know more about what led uh, as you say, this, or as I should say, as President Biden said, Putin and his thugs to end the life of uh, this uh, really heroic uh, struggler for human rights and, and uh, freedom in Russia. Uh, uh, we'll f maybe we'll find out what led them to, to kill him. Um, and uh, we do know from past experience that the Kremlin is not very good at covering its tracks. Uh, it tends to leave a lot of loose ends and the truth often does come out. Well, but it's not as if Putin hasn't been brazen in the past. I mean, he killed over 300 of his own citizens in order to rise, rise to power, blowing up apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow. He used polonium to kill a dissident KGB officer, Litvinenko, in London, did the same with Skripal, the GRU officer, in Salisbury, and, <laughs> and he blew Prigozhin's jet out of the sky and had the security services take credit for it. I mean, it's pretty amazing. that, And, of course, using Novichok, a nerve agent, uh, in their previous attempt to kill uh, Navalny by putting Novichok in his underwear, and he barely survived that one. But in your article, you, you talk about the difference between the two, Navalny and Putin. Navalny was talking about a beautiful Russia of the future, and that Putin, by contrast, I'm right, reading from your article, seems fixated on a partly imaginary Russia of the past. At his recent interview with Tucker Carlson showed the Russian president's mind these days is on the medieval exploits of Yaroslav the Wise and assorted Viking chieftains. This is what I've always been puzzled by, Daniel, is why is it that people give Russia a free pass, both on the political left and around the world and in the global south, uh, in the sense that Russia is, is an imperialist country. It always has been. And look what they're doing in, for example, in Ukraine. They can't recruit the white Russians from the cities because that's, that, there'll be a political backlash. So all of these people from these fast-flung republics, like the Muslims in Dagestan, the Buddhists in Siberia, and now they're bringing in Cuban mercenaries, 20,000 of them, and 15,000 Nepalese mercenaries to fight in Ukraine. So isn't that the activities of colonial power? 
I'm always astonished at the cynicism, the level of cynicism we see in world politics uh, we see and and even our domestic politics. I, I have no idea why the why so many members of the Republican Party seem to uh, view Putin as a positive role model. And uh, as for the global South, as you mentioned, uh, the calculation, e even as a cynical transactional calculation, it seems awfully short-sighted uh, to back uh, Putin in his dead-end global strategy uh, rather than to stand up for international norms and international law. Uh, so, yes, uh, I'm, I'm amazed by it too, Ian. Uh, I think what's important now is that uh, the West, leaders in the West who do recognize the seriousness of the current situation, uh, take the actions that are, that are needed. And uh, the best way to honor Navalny and the enormous sacrifice that he made uh, for Russia, but also uh, you could say for the world, because a free and peaceful Russia is what we need to have a free and peaceful world. Uh, the biggest tribute that we could pay to Navalny is uh, to provide the level of support that's necessary for Ukraine to defend itself against Putin's brutal aggression uh, and to end the war there um, on, with a victory for the Ukrainians. Uh, that is the best hope for changing things politically within Russia, and it's also uh, absolutely essential for the stability of the world order. Uh, so I think I'm hoping that, uh, and I'm certainly not naive about it, but I'm hoping that Navalny's death will add to the uh, pressure on those who are hesitating in the Republican Party uh, and first and foremost, uh, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson to get this aid bill passed and uh, also for others around the world to provide support for uh, Ukraine at this moment when uh, things are frankly not going well at the front lines. Well, but, you know, Trump is now likening himself to Navalny saying he's being persecuted. He, nev he never mentioned uh, Putin at all in his ridiculous response to Navalny's death. And, and we haven't heard a damn thing from, from uh, Mike Johnson about why he's holding up aid to Ukraine and taking a two-week to a month vacation um, where they shut down the house. I mean, the only explanation I can find is that the pro-Putin caucus on the far right of the Republican Party, along with Trump, who controls the Republican Party, has a, has a lot to do with this delusional idea that Vladimir Putin is the champion of the white race and of Christian family values, and they share, as Mike Johnson shares with Putin, the hatred of homosexuals. But this whole idea of who Putin is and why they like him is insane. I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> he's the least Christian. He's a thug. He's a murderer. He's an evil person. And, I mean, he, he hates homosexuals like, like Mike Johnson does. But, you know, Mike Johnson's own religion, the Baptists, uh, would be banned in Russia. I mean, what the hell is going on? Why can't these people see who he is and why are they having this sense of solidarity with him? Over that he shares their Christian family values. Uh, well, I'm not a psychologist, so I struggle with that. I find it hard enough to explain what's going on in Russia, let alone uh, what the Republicans are up to in the U.S. these days. Uh, it's baffling. Well, is there any way though that can Biden, you know, call up Johnson out saying you got it wrong, Mike? This guy is not a Christian, you know. He doesn't believe in family values. He's a murderous thug. Yeah, I, I think Biden did do that to some extent in his in his recent comments. Um, and what we need to hope for is that something will move in the polls uh, in a way that uh, makes those uh, Republican extremist holdouts and uh, Johnson uh, move on this. I, I think it's not impossible. Maybe he'll eventually. Uh, I mean, unfortunately. Uh, way too late, uh, come around to passing the, the bill. Even Viktor Orban has uh, come around to uh, not opposing uh, EU aid to, to Ukraine. So, uh, well, we have to hope, but uh, it, uh, it does 
suggests just how much uh, dysfunction that part of the Republican Party has uh, uh, is is showing these days. But just in closing, though, Daniel, if Trump wins, then he'll pull out of NATO and reward Putin, which will be the only way that Putin will get out of this bind he's in in Ukraine. And if Putin wins in Ukraine, then it'll become a European war that he'll threaten because of his, his, his historical delusions, which he talks about endlessly. He'll threaten the Baltic states, Poland and Moldova. It'll become a European war. Yeah, I think that's that's right. It already is to some extent, uh, but of course it can get uh, it can become a much hotter uh, European war. And uh, Putin continues to do what he thinks is working. And uh, he's invaded Georgia. He's annexed Crimea. He's uh, sent troops to Syria, uh, and now he's invaded Ukraine. In all the previous uh, military aggressions and military interventions, uh, he feels that things worked out pretty well. Uh, so, and it also enables him to justify cracking down at home and and uh, uh, preventing any any shoots of opposition from emerging. Uh, so, I think we have to expect that if he feels that uh, the invasion of Ukraine was a success. Uh, he's going to destabilize other countries, uh, he, and he may even uh, invade uh, border areas of other countries where ethnic Russians are concentrated. So, yeah, we, we should be absolutely clear on just how serious this is. Uh, Trump has made clear uh, both to us and uh, to our enemies that he's not going to uh, do the natural, essential things that are uh, part that that would defend the U.S. against uh, international threats. So we have to we have to recognize that and and make the choices necessary uh, leading up to our election and at the at the uh, ballot box. Well, Daniel Treisman, I thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Treisman, who's acting director of the Center for European and Russian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at CNN, The Best Tribute We Can Pay to Navalny. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining House Speaker Mike Johnson's financial ties to Russian oligarchs in an attempt to understand why he's cutting off aid to Ukraine when they're running out of ammunition in their war against Russian imperialism. Не знаю, чего хочу И мне кажется, нет никаких оснований Гордиться своей судьбой Но если бы я мог выбирать себя Я снова бы стал собой Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anna Masolia, who's a researcher, editor, and writer based in Washington, D.C., at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for open secrets, dark money data, as well as its foreign lobby watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed to by the United States Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayers Advocacy Panel, a federal advisor committee to the IRS, and has held additional roles with the D.C. Superior Court Senior Judges Chambers, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law Voting Rights Project, the D.C. Council Committee on Government Operations, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Masolia. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And Anna, and you're with the watchdogs that look at what money is pouring into Congress, which, you know, you can harken back to Will Rogers' adage, we have the best Congress that money can buy. We obviously have a money-driven system. But the behavior of the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is so peculiar, particularly now that he went ahead and recessed 
without dealing with a huge Senate bill on aid to Ukraine, Israel, Israel and Taiwan. And they're going to be out for two weeks, probably more like a month. And, you know, the Ukrainians are running out of ammunition. None of it makes any sense. Nothing that they've ever said makes any sense in terms of their reasoning or his reasoning. So is money a part of this? I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me as very suspicious is that back in 2018, for his congressional run, he got a large donation from a company owned by a Russian oligarch, Konstantin Nikolaev, who's close to Putin, owns a factory that produces the cartridges that, and the ammunition that the Russians are using to kill the Ukrainians. Uh, so Open Secrets has done a, an investigation into his funding. W- what have you found? Um, that's right. So it's hard to say whether or not this is the real incentive behind Mike Johnson's actions or inaction in this case. But looking back to 2018, there was a case around where a company called American Ethane, which, of course, is an American-based Texas-based company uh, run by an American, but is 80%, 88% owned at least by three Russian nationals, including, including Konstantin um, Nikolaev, who is a very close member of Putin's inner circle, as well as a few other Russian oligarchs and uh, Russian oil and gas and energy industry individuals who are all very much either part of Putin's inner circle or closely tied to his inner circle. Um, and so this is an American company partially owned by a, a majority owned by a number of Russian oligarchs. And again, not these, not your average Russians, members of his inner circle. And this organization is a registered corporation in the United States. It had given money to uh, Mike Johnson's campaign, as well as a few other political committees in 2018. And while an American company giving to political committees may not always raise red flags, there's a few different issues that these particular contributions raised. One being that Johnson's campaign as a candidate committee is not legally allowed to receive contributions from corporations. And so that was a very clean cut issue here. Uh, There was a Federal Election Commission case that largely revolved around that, but also raised a few other issues, um, largely because foreign nationals, uh, whether that be individuals or companies, are not legally allowed to get involved in U.S. elections. And where you get into a bit of a stickier area is U.S.-based companies that have investments from foreign individuals. And that is an area where there's a a number of rules of giving to political committees generally uh, that those American-based companies with foreign investors are allowed to give. But really here, the clean-cut issue was that this was a corporation giving to a campaign, and that is just not allowed across the board. When the Federal Election Commission looked at this, they unanimously decided that Yes, it is an issue for this company to be giving to his campaign, but they really split along partisan lines about addressing whether these are contributions coming from foreign sources, whether that warranted further investigation that this company is predominantly owned by Russian oligarchs. And so uh, there ended up being a fine of just about, I think it was $9,500, which is less than the total contributions the company made to a variety of different Republican committees, Mike Johnson's included. He himself, his campaign received $6,100 collectively over the course of three contributions. But overall, American Ethane had given over $36,000 that year. All of these contributions have either since been refunded or disgorged when they went to campaign committees. Uh, But it still raised a number of issues of who was really exerting the influence behind the scenes of of this corporation giving. And of course, Nikolaev, who we mentioned, is also close to Putin. He also ran and financially backed Maria Bettina, the Russian spy who lived in Washington, D.C. She was sentenced to 18 months in prison in 2019, and that's when Mike Johnson refunded the money. So in general, though, obviously since the United's opened the floodgates here and recall at the joint session of Congress when Obama mentioned just after the passage of Citizens United, he said, you know, that foreign money would pour into elections. And the one representative of the Supreme Court in the chamber was uh, Samuel Alito, and he mouthed, not true. But it is true, obviously. Dark money, that's what you track, is just flooding into our politics and into uh, political packs. And we saw them over the the Super Bowl. There was an expensive ad for RFK, Robert Kennedy Jr., 
which he disowned and said nothing to do with him. Yet he's now polling at 16%, which is pretty frightening. So is there any way to get to Mike Johnson? Or have we created a system that's completely shameless, where you can catch these guys with their pants down and it doesn't make any difference? Well, in this case, um, Johnson's campaign said they did refund the contributions as soon as they were identified. And uh, overall, uh, American Ethane also wasn't allowed to keep that money. They were legally required to disgorge the funds to the U.S. Treasury. So at least in this case, the money is not retained by the campaign. But it still raises a lot of questions about how, why it went there in the first place, what conversations we're having behind the scenes. And when it comes to corporate money and politics, there are a number of restrictions already in place on who it can and cannot go to. In this case, campaigns are legally not supposed to receive corporate money at all, at least at the federal level. At the state level, though, that varies very widely. And so some campaigns can even receive dark money directly. At the federal level, legally, campaigns can benefit from dark money but can't receive it directly, which means those dark money groups can either spend on ads to support candidates or give money to super PACs, um, which are groups that can legally spend and raise unlimited sums as long as they disclose their donors, but they can disclose dark money groups as their donors. And so at the federal level, at least, there are some steps removed for corporations and dark money groups from legally being able to give to campaigns. They can usually only give to support. Uh, foreign nationals, however, end up making this even more complicated where they're not legally supposed to be giving at all to con contribute to U.S. elections. But uh, in the case of foreign subsidiaries uh, that are based in the U.S. or just U.S. companies that have foreign investors, it's a much grayer area in some circumstances where these these companies, at least to general political committees, not necessarily to campaigns at the federal level, but they can give to a number of other groups, to super PACs, to state level campaigns, to party committees at the state level in a number of different states. And as long as the, basically, there's a number of guidelines, but as long as the foreign individuals and investors and foreign nationals are not pulling the strings of those campaign contributions, it is largely legal for those U.S.-based subsidiaries or U.S.-based companies owned by foreign investors, even owned by Russian oligarchs, to be giving to other political committees. Open Secrets recently put out a new report looking at foreign-influenced companies giving at the state level. And just looking at companies with uh, either one investor over 1% or mutual investors adding up over 5%, we were able to track uh, over $163 million just going to six states. And that's just six states. Imagine how much it is across the country. We're getting in the hundreds of millions of dollars range just since the uh, 2018 election cycle. And so we're seeing money pouring in from just across the globe, uh, or at least from com companies that are subsidiaries of, of either investors or other foreign nationals across the globe at the state level, at the federal level. And it really raises the question of how much control do those foreign investors have? How, what role do they play in all of this? Because technically, uh, under campaign finance laws, at least at the federal level, they are not supposed to be pulling the strings. They're not supposed to be involved in those decisions. But it becomes very hard to know what is happening behind the scenes in a number of cases. In particular, when you have investors that make up such a substantial portion of the corporation's funding, as you do in the case of American Ethane, where it was not only owned by some foreign investors, but 80, over at least 88% of the firm is owned by Russian nationals. It was started by uh, Americans along with Russian nationals with that investment money from Russian nationals who are within Putin's inner circle, who have financial ties to his inner circle. And it really raises a number of questions. Well, in, in the case of Konstantin Nikolaev, uh, who ran and financed Maria Bettina, the Russian spy, you recall, Anna, that her job, she had this sort of hapless Republican boyfriend uh, who <laughs> she couldn't stand, but, you know, she was doing her duty. And she got him to set up the NRA to become a conduit for illegal Russian money and campaign donations to be funneled through the NRA into the Trump campaign in 2016. So, I mean, that was her job. Yes, and so that was one of the bigger issues is not only are these tied to Putin, but also tied to other efforts to influence American politics on a much wider scale. So these are individuals who aren't just, again, your average Russians. These aren't just the average individuals who don't have interest in U.S. politics. These are people who have ties to high-level members of Putin's inner circle, 
who have a variety of issues, uh, one and also in some cases have interest in the outcome and ongoing nature of Russia's attack on Ukraine. Uh, in one case, one of the partners is also one of the biggest investors in Russian ar in, in arming the Russian armed forces. We have, uh, in some cases, people who are very much invested in these companies' well-being. Uh, and one thing that's kind of interesting, I know with uh, Nikolaev, like he only is sanctioned in Ukraine currently. So that means he is able to continue to have stake in U.S. companies at this point. And one thing that's particularly interesting in that is that under Trump's administration, there was a really large deal that uh, American Ethane and a few other uh, American-based companies made with providing uh, Ethane to China. It was about a $26 billion deal uh, for Amer American Ethane over the course of a number of years. And there are arguments to be made that that's actually preventing additional sanctions from being yielded against uh, Nikolaev because... Uh, without that, we wouldn't be able to fulfill a lot for that deal effectively. And so it's really, it gets very messy very quickly when you have uh, other foreign relations with other com with other countries involved as well. So how's Open Sequence dealing with 2024? Because you cannot make the case that 2016 was a re rehearsal to fund Trump in 2016 and that now... There's an even greater incentive because Trump has made it clear that he wants to pull out of NATO and, and this is the best way for Putin to get himself out of the fix he's got himself into in Ukraine. Uh, the best way to win the war in Ukraine is to have Trump become president again. So the conditions are out there for Putin to pull out all the stops in 2024. What evidence do you have so far? Because I, I'm not sure that we're talking only about money being laundered through oligarchs because of the hybrid warfare toolkit. A big part of it is the weaponization of money via oligarchs who are regulated by Putin uh, and do, do what he tells them to do. Otherwise, they lose their fortunes. But there are, there are other tools in the, in the hybrid warfare toolkit, including AI and other influence tools. So do you think that this year is going to be worse than 2016? It's hard to say. This election, we already see more money uh, than 2016 or 2020. We're already seeing a the election starting earlier, going harder, more money pouring in from billionaires domestically, as well as just a variety of different groups that we don't know where the source of their funding is. And so it's really a situation ripe for influence to be exerted, whether that be by domestic powers or by foreign interests. AI has really changed the game with that, where we are seeing this rise of uh, disinformation of manipulated images, manipulated voices, uh, just coming from the domestic front. And it's created this ability to create an environment that we're always questioning what we're seeing. Is this a, um, an actual real depiction of a political candidate? And that is something, a tool that really can be leveraged by bad actors who are trying to spread disinformation, who are trying to discourage Americans from voting, who are trying to pit different American audiences against each other. And one of the tools that we have seen Russia deploy in the past is that targeting of very niche audiences, trying to sow discord within the U.S. And these are tools that could be really easily leveraged for that type of thing. One of the areas that we are following very closely at Open Secrets is what is reported under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So these are basically lobbying efforts on the behalf of different foreign governments or foreign nationals, as well as PR campaigns. One of the things that we've really seen from Russia is their propaganda efforts, uh, things like Russia Today and the offshoots of that. Uh, and uh, in recent years, you would think that they've completely ground to a halt based on some news coverage. But really, we're still seeing millions of dollars pumping into those efforts to try to influence U.S. public opinion on Russia. And in some cases, just subtle messaging, trying to really pit different American communities against each other. So that discord and in many in some cases, even uh, promote voter suppression. Well, we had a flagrant example of Russian influence peddling um, from Tucker Carlson. Um, but I guess the problem we have here is the gullibility of so many Americans. I mean, there was a recent poll that said that something like a quarter of Republicans think that Taylor Swift is a Democratic Party operation, influence operation. Conspiracy theories are a real problem, and 
foreign actors at authoritarian governments, uh, China, Russia, and Russia in particular in this case, have really been able to pick up on those conspiracy theories on the left and the right, and in particular in this case on the right, and be able to run with them and be able to take these little threads of truth, these threads of like what people are curious about and questioning, and be able to use them to promote their own narratives. So we've explained a lot of the problems, which are clearly a clear and present danger to American democracy. I mean, no foreign countries had this kind of influence over the United States since the British did before the American Revolution. It, it ought to be a huge wake-up call, particularly when the malign influencer is none other than Vladimir Putin, who just had his leader of the opposition murdered. So what's your sense then of, of, of what can be done? And I don't see, for example, Biden and the Democrats fighting back in a way that is necessary to meet the challenge. I think it's really important to note that foreign influence, while in some cases can target a very a partisan audience, whether that's Republicans or Democrats, is happening on both sides of the aisle in a number of circumstances. And it's also coming from countries other than Russia. One of the real issues with tracking foreign influence is that we don't know what isn't disclosed. So we know what comes out, whether these are things that are reported under the Foreign Agents Registration Act or very egregious cases that come to light due to complaints, due to investigations, due to hard-hitting journalism. But there's so much else out there, uh, whether that's in the form of dark money, in the form of other types of influence operations through AI, through influencers, through a variety of different online means that have really created this kind of unregulated wild west of influence peddling. There's so much else out there that people might not be aware of and that we might not even have a full grasp of yet. And so I think it's really important going in to be mindful of what media you're consuming to question when you get targeted with an ad on the internet, when you're in a forum, who has an interest in influencing your views, who might be coloring that messaging, and to be aware that, especially online, it's really easy for a malicious actor to be able to, prevent, to pretend to be something different. These aren't Russian nationals going on and acting like they are in the inner circle of Vladimir Putin or hired to act on his behalf. These are people acting like community members taking up what appear to be, in some cases, be grassroots efforts and support, or in, in this case, like it looks like an American company. And if you saw the name American Ethane, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, this is predominantly owned by Russian interests. And so being able to take on these appearances of being something palatable to the average American where they might rely on that information and not question it, I think is a really dangerous thing. And so I think it's really important to know where you're consuming your information from, check check the sources, check multiple places if you read something and you're not sure whether you should believe it, and really have that media literacy, I think is something that's so important to be able to promote and add. And also just having more transparency can be a really helpful component of that, having disclaimers on things and having the information about who is funding these sources, who's giving money to politicians or who's spending on political operations accessible in a way. Open Secrets plays a part in that, but there's so much else out there that really needs to be done. Well, Anna Maselja, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you again for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Masolia, who's a researcher, editor, and writer based in Washington, D.C., at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for open secrets, dark money data, as well as its foreign lobby watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed by the United States Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayers Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS, and she's held additional roles with the D.C. Superior Court Senior Judges Chambers, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law Voting Rights Project, the D.C. Council Committee on Government Operations, the United States House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. We're going to take a brief station bringing back looking into a country held hostage by gun violence.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jonathan Metzel, the Frederick B. Rensselaer II Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he is the director of its Center for Medicine, Health, and Society, a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. He's the author of several books, including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, and his latest book, Just Out, is what we've become living and dying in a country of arms welcome to background briefing jonathan metzel thanks so much it's great to be back well it's so obvious that across the country uh, we're living and dying in in a country of arms just just in the last few days finally the two juveniles have been charged for the mass shooting at the kansas city chiefs super bowl parade and these kids are either 17 or younger. We don't know much about them, obviously, because they're juveniles. But they obviously had access to guns, and they shot wildly, killing a popular disc jockey and wounding 22 others, half of which were children. And then we've also just today had a shooting in Minnesota where three first responders were shot dead, answering a domestic violence call. And then, of course, uh, in Indianapolis, uh, there's been another Waffle House shooting, which, of course, is essentially what you write about in, the, in your first chapter of your book. Of course, this, we're talking about another Waffle House shooting in 2018 in Nashville. So this, your head must be exploding, Jonathan. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of the central argument of the book is like what happens to the psyche and psychology of a nation that normalizes this kind of trauma. We we used to, you know, circumscribe it. Um, we'd say like if somebody was in a, in a warfare, for example, or in a terrorist attack. And so that's how we defined post-traumatic stress disorder. People who were around the threat of death for a number of hours or missions or flights flown in combat. And now, you know, in lots of the country, people you know, they, they feel like just stepping outside the house or even in some places just staying inside the house with, with bullets coming through your, your, your wall. So in a way, the, the, the book really asks, um, what, what, is the, what, what is the soul of our nation when we've habituated this kind of just really daily mass death? And uh, uh, your, the first chapter of, of your book, your, the first chapter of your new book, uh, Jonathan, what we've become living and dying in a country of arms again is is about the waffle house shooting in nashville in 2018 where a mentally disturbed white person uh who i think was naked actually he, he shot four people uh, i think they were mostly african-americans that were, were the victims his name was travis rankin who had suffered from severe mental illness and had a history of run-ins with the law and he, of course, back in the state of Illinois, where he resided, police confiscated his gun, but at the last minute they gave them to his father instead of taking them. And then when Reinking moved to Tennessee, there's no requirement in Tennessee for anyone to, any citizen to relinquish their weapons. So the father returned the guns. So that's a brief sketch of what happened here. But uh, it's right at the intersection where you work, right, between firearms and mental illness. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that the story of the book tells the story of this 2018 shooting. And for me, it was a horrific tragedy for our community here in Nashville. We almost similar to the Kansas City shooting, we lost, um, a, you know, we, four young adults of color were killed, um, four were injured, including a rather well-known local rapper, a basketball star, other other incredible victims. And so part of the story was just, you know, what happens when we slow down, the, you know, we, we hear about a mass shooting almost every day, it feels like. What happens when we slow down and just tell the one story of one shooting, the before and after? It's it's a lot more surprising than I or hopefully readers realize. But also in this case, it was a naked white man with an AR-15 who had traveled from Illinois to Tennessee uh, and to, to commit this shooting. And so for me, this was, you know, the book is what we've become. And for me, this was a, a, a really important metaphor that this naked white man, his armed naked white body and what it represented really became for me a symbol of 
not just the daily trauma, but the racial politics of that daily trauma um, in ways that I, I really explore in, in depth. And I think in for, well, for me as a researcher, very surprising ways in the book. Well, in terms of the politics of this issue of, of gun safety or gun control versus the proliferation of firearms, President, uh, former President Donald Trump recently at the NRA convention in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, said that if he returns to the White House, no one will lay a finger on your firearms. And then he went on to boast that during his time as president, he did nothing to curb guns. So, and he's the the front runner in many polls. So what's your sense? You're out, you're doing a, a nationwide tour now to promote your book. What are you learning from people? Do they feel that there's still a way to make a change? When we go back to President Obama after the hideous massacre of the school children at Sandy Hook, he, it brought him to tears, the frustration of not being able to get anything done. Now you've got a, a former president who may get reelected and is vowed that uh, he won't do anything about guns. So what's the mood out there in terms of activists trying to deal with this hideous uh, scourge with some rationality? Well, I've been writing about this a lot recently. And in, in the book, I argue two, you know, almost two poles of this. On, on one hand, I think that the implications of the 24 election could not be more clear. Um, when Trump was uh, elected before, he put in really three support Supreme Court justices who were A-rating NRA justices who have led to a really a radical um, expansion of, of the Second Amendment in ways that really are going to have profound implications for a very long time in our country. Uh, but I think that's just the appetizer uh, for what would happen if Trump won another term in terms of really the judiciary power that he would have really to almost overturn practically every gun law. I mean, that's almost what the Bruin case did in 2022, but it would be a lot worse. And so I think really um, the implications of who wins the 24 election are really deep, not just for guns and shootings, but as I've been writing recently about what about what failure to stop this says about our democracy. So I think that I think really, no matter how people are feeling right now, they should, if this is their issue, really feel the energy of getting mobilized because who wins this election is is really a huge a huge factor. Um, but but part of the story for me also uh, in the book is really coming to a critical reckoning with my own position as a public health scholar because I having I, I interview hundreds of red state gun owners for this book. And and really, it, it's a divide, right? On one hand, there are people like Trump who are telling people, I'm going to let you keep your guns and keep your power and keep your liberty. It's very tactile. And then for people like me, it's, you know, the argument is we're going to impose regulations. And so I, I can see how the gun safety argument has failed to capture the energy of people in red states because it's something very material on one, one hand and very government linked and regulatory on the other. And so part of what I argue in the book is we need to, we really need to reboot the gun safety movement in, in a way that I think addresses some of these more concrete material financial concerns for people. Well, how much though can we hold the Supreme Court culpable for this epidemic of mass shootings, particularly with uh, military style assault weapons? Um, because there's definitely been an uptick certainly since Bruin, but then going back to Heller, which was the Scalia turned the whole Second Amendment on its head. The Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, a citizen's right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, the predicate was literally turned around and almost ignored. And the truth of the matter is that we are no longer secure or free. We can't go to the movies without fear of, of being shot. We can't go to malls. We can't go to churches. We can't go to schools. I mean, has anybody done any any statistical analysis of the uptick in mass shootings since these two Supreme Court rulings? Um, yeah, actually, my book has lots of that data. So I hope people will see. I mean, I, the Supreme Court is a key player in, in, in this book. Um, you you mentioned that that the Heller decision uh, earlier um, 
you know, what, what really was part of a process of opening the door. Um, it's it's almost unimaginable to realize that there there weren't any. The Supreme Court hadn't heard any any gun cases because people didn't really feel in a controversial way about the Second Amendment in our country for about two centuries. It really wasn't a matter of dispute. Um, and as I talk about in the book, a lot of things happened. The NRA was taken over by a extreme kind of radical faction bent on reinterpreting the very ambiguous language in the Second Amendment. Um, but as I talk about in the book, the Heller decision at least left a lot of loopholes in place. Now, certainly it opened the floodgates in a lot of ways in terms of the commercial markets. Um, but at least cities like New York could set their own gun laws and there were exceptions for mental illness or past history of egregious behavior or spousal abuse, which is a case the Supreme Court's deciding on right now. And, and really, I, I, if nothing else, I hope people read through my book because it actually ends with the Bruin decision, the hearing. And it talks about how much health as a rhetoric is not a consideration in their deliberations. In other words, they're slam dunk evidence. As you say, that these guns are leading to profound negative health outcomes, but but that's not the logic through which they listen to the case, argue the case, or decide the case. And, and for me, we're just on the cusp of the implications of that, because what it meant was that a lot of locales that had passed gun safety regulations we're going to see constitutional challenges because according to the Bruin case, um, any gun law has to be consistent with this absurd standard of how people in the 1700s thought about gun safety, where there weren't AR-15s, there wasn't even a notion of domestic abuse. There wasn't, um, you know, there was a case recently where they asked, could people at, at summer camps um, uh ban weapons at summer camp, but it wasn't constitutional because there were no summer camps in 1700. So the, the whole thing is is just absurd. Um, but that's kind of where we're at. And so I, I would say that, I mean, I, of course, there are many players here answering your question, but I do think that liberals like myself have not seen enough or, or acted enough on the role of, of judges in, in setting these parameters with profound implications. But these judges, in particular, the Supreme Court justices, Many are originalists, and the founding fathers who wrote the founding documents talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But now we have reached a point where liberty, or the concept of liberty, meaning you you have to be free to have an assault rifle, is is uh, threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. I mean. Part of why I think the Waffle House story was so important to me, in addition to like just the story itself, which I found to be a really complicated story with a lot of twists and turns. I interview a lot of people um, uh, around the crime. I get um, videos of the um, home videos filmed by the shooter. He was sleeping naked with his AR-15, going around telling people, including police and FBI agents, agents what he was going to do. And at every point in, in the narrative, he could have been stopped, except that these loose gun laws didn't give any opportunity to do so. In other words, this shooter was not guilty of anything until the second he pulled a trigger. And even after this horrific crime, the state of Tennessee mobilized to protect the rights of white men with guns, not to say, let's learn from this and dial it back a little bit. And so he, I was mentioning before that he becomes a, a almost a a parable for America. And, and that's that's really what I meant, that, um, you know, the, it, the liberty is so free that even a clearly homicidal, psychotic, naked white male shooter has rights that are protected um, leading up to, to this terrible crime. So in the last few minutes then, Jonathan, let's sort of try and figure out, I know you were saying earlier that there's a certain despondency amongst the gun safety or gun control community. I think when we last talked, it was at the time of that terrible mass shooting in Maine. And I can't remember the exact number of mass shootings that year, but 2023, I think, has been a record, hasn't it? Yeah, it's more, like than, more, than one, more than one a day right now. Right. So, you know, right. we're, we're, we're doing that. But, I mean, you know... I, I actually end the book and a lot of my writing since then has been about what we can do about it right now. I think that's where people are and that's where they should be. Um, and so I, I've written a bunch of 
um, pieces in Huffington Post and Time and other places uh, talking about how I think we can reframe our messaging around guns and gun safety uh, geared toward people in purple states, for example, who might be you know, independent swing middle of the road voters who might be put off by democratic messaging. And so I, I've been doing a lot of that. I, I really do a lot of arguing in the book and elsewhere that we can do a lot of work beyond the regulatory apparatus that we've been kind of based in a, a lot. And so I talk about how we can reimagine structures, cities, infrastructures, economies, um, to reward gun safety. And so I try to kind of use the argument of the book. In, it's it's a sad, horrible, depressing story, honestly, but it's also one that leads to, I think, a new way of thinking about this issue, which is, I hope, what people get out of it, um, that we can be much more structurally focused and that there are points of infrastructure building, civic infrastructure building, ways of using gun safety to defend democratic institutions um, that, that I think we can be doing as again, we we mobilize, but again, I just can't say enough how much, so much of this depends on who wins in 24. But there is, just in the last minute here, the, I've interviewed Ryan Boosie, who's a former executive with an arms manufacturing company, who's now running for governor in the state of Montana, and he's a, you know, a gun owner and a hunter, etc. But he's also against the firearm industry that he used to work for and the NRA. People like that surely can be helpful. No, t tons of people can be helpful. I mean, I think the the most important thing I think that, or that I'm trying to highlight is how did we get into this particular position? I mean, I hope people read the book and just understand a little bit about how we got here. There are many more players than I, even I realized before I wrote the book. And that helps us think about how to how to move forward. But I, I mean, certainly there are plenty of people like Ryan who does incredible work. Um but, but I think it's got to be broader than just um, gun owners who are willing to come over to our side. I think we need to kind of reimagine what it is we can do along with along with gun safety to rebuild uh, infrastructure, to be more entrepreneurial. I, I just think that there are a lot of opportunities for us, again, depending on elections, which is, I, I just keep saying the first thing, but, you know, for me, it, it's, it's, it's really... Um, I mean, it's really kind of a, an inflection moment for us. And I, I think if we win, it shouldn't just be we want red flag laws and background checks. We actually should think about ways we can broaden the the, the discourse around, around public safety, which I think a lot of people care about. But again, so much goes back to what happens in this coming election. It really is just an urgent moment for, for these issues and so many others. Well, Jonathan Metzl, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much. And again, I'll be speaking with Jonathan Metzl, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University in, in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's the director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society, a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. He's the author of several books, including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And his latest book just out is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.